Well, it uh, is good to be with you tonight. A great passage of Scripture, John chapter 2. And um, let me pray that God would uh, just uh, encourage us and inspire us to see just the beauty of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the surprising nature of Jesus, the impressiveness of Jesus, and that we would believe in Him and trust in Him. Let me pray. Lord God, we do pray that as we hear Your Word, Lord, that we would be moved by it, that your Spirit would take these words and impress them upon our hearts, uh, that we would see Jesus again and see him even more clearly than ever before, that uh, we would be changed by him, that we, like the disciples, would believe in him as we see his glory. And Lord, we pray that our faith would be authentic, uh, that, uh, that Jesus would look into our hearts and know that our faith is authentic, it's true, it's genuine. We're not just chasing a miracle but we're seeing the glory of Jesus. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, we need to be aware that uh, you can see a miracle, but miss the glory. You can see a miracle, but miss the glory. You know, a few years ago, I, after many conversations and much prayer, a man I was witnessing to, and who also attended a Bible study I was running, agreed that the evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead was compelling. He said, okay, you've convinced me. It's in the evidence. He died and then he was alive again. He rose from the dead. I am convinced, he said, by the evidence. It's true. Well, after many months of prayer and, uh, and witnessing and encouragement and apologetics and defending this truth, I was obviously encouraged, greatly encouraged. So then I said to him, so will you now repent and trust in Jesus? Will you turn from your sins and receive him as your Lord and Savior? And to my surprise, he said, no. I said, what do you mean no? You've just told me that you believe that Jesus is God's son who died and rose again. He said, I'm not sure Jesus is worth following. I'm not sure of the cost of following Jesus. I know it's true, but I don't know if I want to follow him. You see, this guy believed in the miracle of the resurrection, but he didn't see the glory. He missed the glory of who Jesus was. You can believe in a miracle, but miss the glory. Chapter 2 in John's Gospel opens a new section of the Gospel of John. It's Jesus' public ministry from its commencement in Galilee to its climax in Jerusalem. It is organized, as you see it here, around seven miracles. And John's word for them is the word signs or semea, which is an alternative to miracles or wonders. Sometimes the other gospel writers put it that way. He calls them signs because he is concerned that we see beyond the miracles to their significance. They are signs, they are special actions by Jesus that reveal his glory to those who believe but confront others with the need to decide about Jesus. You know, in John 1.14, that Matt looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago, we have these words. The Word became flesh. The Word is a reference to Jesus. He became flesh and made His dwelling among us, where He tabernacled and uh, He lived amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in the miracles, we get to see the glory of Jesus, that He is no ordinary man, He's no ordinary prophet, but he has come from God full of grace and truth. And what's the purpose of that? Why should we see his glory? So that we would believe in him. John 20, 31. 
Why did John put this together? Why did he collect the information? But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. You see the miracle, you see the glory, and then you believe. Now, Jesus' first sign comes up in John chapter 2, turning water into wine. It's a wedding. And it's interesting that Jesus, at a wedding, at a, at a normal occasion, manifests his glory so people can see it. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Big invitation, big party, local community. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman. Didn't say mother, said woman. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. So they, there they are invited to a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Probably a family connection because the mother's there and she seems to have some influence on what's happening with the food and running out of wine. And the disciples are there as well. Now, you need to understand a little bit about Jewish marriage customs and wedding celebrations, because they're quite different to ours, and I want you to answer for a moment, is the world of this wedding. Marriages in that first century were preceded by betrothal, which is a much more serious matter than simply an engagement today. They made a pledge to each other. It was so binding that to break it, divorce proceedings were necessary. At the conclusion of the betrothal period, the marriage took place. I'm told that the day of the wedding was a Wednesday if the bride was a virgin and on Thursday if she was a widow. Two different days for the weddings. The wedding was often also held in the evening, not during the day. Plenty of time to get your hair done, right? Because, you see, when you have the weddings in the evening, you have processions with torchlight and the whole village is watching it and you've got your lights out. And what would happen is the bridegroom, the bridegroom and his friends went in procession to the home of the bride. So in a village community, he comes out of his house with his family and friends. They go over to the bride's house. They would then A few of them would go into the house while the others waited outside. The actual ceremony, whatever its form, took place inside the bride's home. Then there was another procession, this time with everyone who's interested, and they go back to the home of the bridegroom. Off they go to the bride's house, do the wedding inside, then they all go back to the bridegroom's house. It's a community event. That's where the party takes place. I had a little bit of experience of that in my own family, uh, not in the first century, I'm not that old, but back in the old days in beautiful Marigville, when there were Greeks in Marigville, they were the days. You see, my older brother decided that he wanted some of this experience of a procession and so on. So our family gathered at our house, and we all dressed up in our best suits. And rather than going to the bride's house, we walked to the church, almost a kilometer away on a major road. And he had arranged musicians who were playing their bouzouki and all their other Greek instruments, dressed appropriately. And we followed the musicians all the way up to the church. And when they got there, they danced around the front of the church in the, in the foyer or courtyard before we came in. The only thing we missed was a donkey or two, but it was a great occasion. But it's like that in the first century, you see, Jewish wedding. Everyone in the village and the community knows that this is a great event. Everyone's been waiting for this event. Everyone knows the people getting married. 
You know, seeing the weddings were to go up to a week. My mother and father, that when they got married, they told me their wedding went for three to four days. That's a tiring experience. But a serious problem arose. Since the wine was all used up before the end of the feast. You know, in the first century, you drank water or wine. There were no alternatives. There's no wine left. You think, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is it would bring great shame and embarrassment on the bridegroom and his family because they host the party. Everyone comes to their house. They're out of wine. Everyone's looking around. There's no more wine. Where's the wine? It's not any wonder that my family always overcated for extended family functions. There is shame and embarrassment if you run out of food or you run out of drink. It may be that this family was a poorer family. And they just catered just enough to, to get by, you know, all these people from the village over a, nu- a number of days, even up to a week. But their worst nightmare has taken place. They have run out of wine. And we're told that in the first century, sometimes the guests could sue you, right? Listen to this. They could sue you for failing to provide enough food and drink at your wedding. So Mary disturbed by what has taken place. Friends, this is not simply they've just run out of wine. This is potential lawsuit. This is potential embarrassment and shame on the family in that community for the next 10 years. Mary sees it and enters the scene. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they've no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary, his mother, approaches him. She doesn't explicitly explicitly ask for a miracle, but she says, they've got no more wine. What do we do? Mary knew that Jesus was unique, didn't she? The angels had spoken about Jesus before his birth. She knew that she had conceived him while still a virgin. She knew that his whole manner of life stamped him out as difference. She knew that the disciples were now gathering around him. She knew Jesus to be God's Messiah. And in the words of Leon Morris, she He writes, it may be that we should see here some natural motherly pride and perhaps a small trace of exasperation. From Luke's gospel, we know that Jesus was about 30 years old when he started on his public ministry. Luke 3, 23. Mary may well have been asking herself, when will he begin his work as Messiah? Surely it's time. Mary, proud of her son, Maybe giving him a gentle push. Come on, Jesus. Well, are you going to start this saving mission sometime? You're 30 now, all right? Like any good mother, she pushes him along. Here is a good opportunity for him to make a beginning. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Woman. Sounds a bit cold, doesn't it? Address your mother, woman, rather than mum. It's not as, I'm told it's not as cold in the Greek as it is in English. It's, he's not saying, don't bother me, woman. I've got better things to do. Sort out your own problems. I, I don't think he's saying that. Because the same expression for woman is used in the last moments as he hangs on the cross and tenderly commends his mother to the beloved disciple to be looked after. But it is unusual for a son to address his mother in that way. It is neither a Hebrew nor a Greek practice. There are no examples cited other than in the Gospel of John. Is Jesus the perfect one 
being disrespectful to his mother. No, he's not, but what is he doing? Though speaking politely, Jesus is now putting a distance between them. You see, he has been a dutiful son. She has been a loving mother. But God is going to lead Jesus in ways that his mother won't agree with. His mother will not understand. And at one point, they think he's gone mad, and they go after him to try and bring him home. You're saying, why do you involve me? Our relationship has changed now. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I have a mission to undertake, and you're not the one who's going to push me into that mission. Mom, you've got your role. This is my role. And he says, my time, literally my hour, has not yet come. If you're trying to push me, Mom, do you understand? If you're pushing me now, I'm going to reveal my glory that's going to lead to my execution and my death. Mum, don't. Just don't push. Jesus uses this expression, my time has not yet come, a number of times in the Gospel of John. John 7, verse 6, verse 8, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20. The hour which we, to which he refers to is the cross and the exaltation bound in it. My hour has not yet come. But when the cross is in immediate prospect, Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. John 12, 23, 12, 27, 13, verse 1, 16, verse 32, 17, verse 1. One, two, three, four, five times when he's getting close to his arrest and his execution, he says, my hour has come to be glorified, right? And even through his death, he's going to be lifted up and glorified. I think he's saying to his mum, mum, don't push me. I have a time framework that I'm working on, and I'm in control of that. I love what, he's, what Mary does. Yeah, do whatever he says. Jesus says, don't push me. She says, yeah, yeah, just do whatever he says. I love that faith, don't you? Don Carson says, in 2 verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In 2 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. She still does not know what he would do, but she has committed the matter to him and trusts him. Friends, those two verses are very important, verse 4 and 5. They shape the first account of Jesus' miracle, the account of Jesus' first miracle, and they show the focus is on Jesus' glory, not Mary's, and the disciples' faith and Mary's faith. So what's the miracle? Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus looked at them and said, well, I'll fix this up. Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Now he told them, now draw some, some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The six stone jars. Remember I said that these, uh, this couple might be embarrassed and shamed in the community because they've run out of wine? Remember how I said they may even be sued for failing to, uh, to care for their guests properly? Jesus is going to turn that around completely. Each jar held between 120 to 150 gallons, that is between 500 and 750 litres in total. Quite a bit of water becomes quite a bit of wine here. Jesus was going to be extremely generous to this young couple who are in danger of great embarrassment. Let me tell you, after this wine, no one is going to sue them. Amen? 
And the jars were used normally for ceremonial washing. The Jewish people would wash their hands before meals, make sure everything was cleansed, so they could then participate in their normal life. Jesus fills them to the brim. There's no opportunity for someone to throw in a bit of wine, so it tastes like wine. And what I love about this is, you know, sometimes when you're praying for a miracle, you, you pray hard and you, you clench your fists and you walk around the room up and down multiple times, calling out to God and you're screaming, God, please do this. And, and someone's praying, a, a demon out of someone, and they're screaming or they're praying for something and they have to raise their voice. For Jesus, there's no prayer, no word of command, no hysterical shouting, no pleading with a screwed up face, no laying on of hands, no binding of Satan, no hocus pocus, no mumbo jumbo, nothing. He didn't even touch the water. Jesus, you could have at least touched it. No, nothing. He says, fill it up and take it to the guy to taste. The power, the glory of Jesus. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where, it, where he had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. See, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. One fourteen, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is going to start showcasing his glory to everyone right now. And friends, his glory would be revealed in the greatest measure, not through turning water into wine, but through dying on a cross in our place and through his resurrection and exaltation. And that's where he's going to head. That's where Jesus is going to head. He's going to reveal his glory all the way along until his final glory. But you see, is it just about that? Scholars think, well, is it, why does he pick this wedding and the turning of water that's normally used for cleansing of hands in Jewish ceremonial laws? Why does he use those containers and those jars? Is he doing something else? And uh, they say the sign points to Jesus' glory, and it may point to his transforming power. Let me give you three quotes. John Carson writes, Jesus' use of the jars for ceremonial washings provides a clue to one of the meanings of the story. The water represents the old order or Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was to replace with something better. Leon Morris writes, This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He transforms water into wine. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of law into the wine of the gospel. J.C. Ryle sees an eschatological difference, significance. See, he says, to attend a marriage feast and cleanse the temple from profanation were among the first acts of our Lord's ministry at his first coming. We're going to look at the cleansing in a moment. A marriage feast and the cleansing. To purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper will be among his first acts when he comes again. He says it may be pointing forward to what Jesus will do when he returns. We've seen the first miracle, which showcased his glory. And then we have Jesus' first great public act in chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. 
Uh, there they stayed for a few days, he says. They hung out. Then, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to the Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. The temple courts were a noisy place. There are animals making all types of noises. There are people changing money. It's probably in what is called the court of the Gentiles. See, God was interested that people who are not Jewish would come close enough to worship the true God and discover the God of Israel. It's meant to be a, the play, I meant to be a place for prayer for all the nations, one of the other Gospels says. But what has happened is that they're doing their selling in the court of the Gentiles. So the poor Gentiles are coming to worship God, and they're stuck with animals and noise, so they cannot pray properly. It's now a cattle yard and a money market. Now, why are they, why are they changing money? Well, firstly, let's go back to the animals. They need the animals for their sacrifices, so you need them there. But they should have been selling them outside, not in the court, in the, in the court of the Gentiles. But also they needed money changes because as people came from all over the Roman Empire and they gathered for the high festivals, they brought different type of coins. But the temple tax to be paid by every conscientious Jewish male of 20 years of age or over had to be paid in a Tyrian coinage. It had a high purity of silver. So they had to exchange their money to get it into the Tyrian coinage to pay their temple tax. But rather than doing it outside of the temple, it's all happening in, in the temple, at least in the court of the Gentiles. Don Carson writes, Instead of the solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. And Jesus is not happy. How do we know he's not happy? Well, he made a whip out of cords and drove them out. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild with a little lamb on his lap, as you see in the photographs and the pictures, right? And the paintings. No, no, he sees an abuse of his father's house. He has, he takes action. He says, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. You imagine, they're all running everywhere. There's, there's a mess. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This Jesus, he's, is he frantic? Has he gone crazy? What's going on? No, no, no. He is demonstrating his concern for his father's house. He is concerned that Gentiles would come and hear the gospel and find new life in Jesus. But it's a mess to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And now the police turn up, probably. What's Jesus doing? Why is the mess? There's some crazy prophets so he thinks is the Messiah. It doesn't happen. You know what happens? The Jews know. Listen to this, you may not know this. The Jews know from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, and we're preaching on Malachi in the mornings, that the Lord will come to his temple and purify the worship within it. God has already prophesied that the Lord will come. The Messiah comes, Jesus comes. They're not questioning whether he's right to do it. Also, they're not questioning what he did, but he's right to do it. And then they say to him, if you're acting like a Messiah... 
If you're driving out these people, you're cleansing the temple. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. I love how Jesus confuses them all, don't you? They want a simple answer and he says, destroy this temple that is in the middle of this massive temple where they go to worship God and bring their animal sacrifices where a way of peace with God is made possible. He says, destroy it and I will raise it in three days. A cryptic statement pointing to his resurrection, the Bible says. The Jews have no idea what he's talking about. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body, John says. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. They were thinking of stones and mortar. Jesus was talking about the temple of his own body. Friends, when the skeptic says, give me a miracle or give me a sign and I will believe in you, we can, have, we can do no better than what Jesus did. Point them to the resurrection of Jesus. I will destroy it. It will be raised in three days. You know, in my, uh, in my 20s, I was struggling with faith over a period of time while I was studying the Bible. And uh, for me, it was the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that kept me in the faith. It was the compelling evidence that Jesus died and then rose from the dead that ensured that I loved Jesus, I trusted in him and followed him. And there's some great books, if maybe you're considering that for yourself, maybe some friends, and you think, oh, I can't get them to think about uh, miracles or resurrection. Why don't you give them this book, More Than a Carpenter? Or this book, Leading Lawyer's Case for the Resurrection? Or The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel? People who all struggled with the evidence for Jesus, but were convinced by the evidence of the resurrection that Jesus is truly the Messiah, someone worth trusting. That in the resurrection, the ultimate miracle, we see the glory of God manifest. But secondly, in the cleansing of the temple and his reference to the destruction of the temple, Jesus is looking already right here in chapter 2 beyond the age of temple worship. Temple worship will come to an end. And the temple was destroyed in AD 70. There's no more temple. But people would worship in spirit and in truth, he's going to say in John chapter 4. A new day is coming. You won't need to sacrifice these animals that I've just driven out of your temple. No, no, no. I will be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who dies for the sins of the world. That old system is going to be obsolete. The old system of temple worship and animal sacrifices is coming to an end, he tells us. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, it concludes, verse 23, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, so he's showing more signs there to reveal his glory and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Well, that's fascinating. They see them. John says they believe, but clearly this belief at this point is inadequate faith. It's not true saving faith. Jesus, they follow him. They sort of believe in a, in a superficial way, but they really haven't seen his glory. They've seen the miracles, but they haven't seen his glory. 
And Jesus said, well, I don't trust myself to them. I know what's in their hearts. I know what they're like. I know they don't quite get it yet. Let me ask you as we conclude. Do you see Jesus' glory behind the first miracle? If you do, then put your faith in him and experience eternal life. And you know, my friend that I shared the gospel with, right, and I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, he was convinced by the evidence of the miracle of the resurrection, but he didn't see the glory. But I do thank God that a few years later, he not only believed in the miracle of the resurrection, he saw the glory of Jesus and repented and put his faith in him. That is my prayer for us. That is my prayer for people in our community. They would see the glory of Jesus and genuinely put their faith in him. To God be the glory. Amen.